First Peter um, chapter 3. Wives and husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. We just keep finding ourselves with fun passages of scripture, right? <laughs> um, man, we have some hard texts uh, to walk through. I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, when we were looking at uh, submission and authority and particularly like governing authorities uh, and, and uh, how, you know, we happened to fall like around the Sunday before election uh, day. Like when, when, when we saw that... Um, that that's what we were working through, I said, you know, there's probably isn't a more unpopular topic to address in the scriptures. I said that a couple weeks ago, uh, and I'm realizing that was a lie. <laughs> um, um, that This is another difficult text to walk through. We're talking about submission uh, and authority still, but now we're looking at it in the context of a home, right? If you've been with us, you know that this series that we've been working through, uh, this this small but great book of 1 Peter, uh, it's written by Peter, who's a veteran pastor. He's an apostle, he's a church planter, and he's writing to a group of Christians uh, who've been dispersed throughout a region. And in the midst of this dispersion, they're finding themselves restless and tired and suffering and being persecuted. Uh, and, and Peter's writing to them uh, to encourage them to hold fast to hope. What does it look like to have resilient hope during restless times? Which I think is, is a topic that we could certainly uh, 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 unpack this year. The need for that. And what we see is that oftentimes what it looks like uh, in or to actually like live out your faith during restless times. One of the ways that that, one of the most tangible ways that that resilient hope, that Christian hope, uh, just just tangibly like you can almost see it on display is through the Christian's relationship with authority. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, you know, what should the Christian's relationship be with governing authorities? Uh, last week, we looked at what should a Christian's uh, relationship uh, look like with uh, authority in the workplace when we looked at servants and masters and things like that. Uh, and this morning, we continue that theme talking about submission and authority in the home. Now, sometimes we run across passages of Scripture, passages in the Bible just like this that are difficult. And some passages are difficult because they're just difficult to understand. And other passages are difficult because once you do understand them, they're just difficult to accept. And this morning's passage kind of falls in both of those buckets. It's both of those. And so let me just get to the bottom of the text that we just read. It says that, uh, the, the, like, uh, the, the, the text says, that wives should be subject to 
their husbands, even a Christian wife to an unchristian husband. Now, right now, culture says a woman should never be subject to any man, right? And so we'll get a lot of pushback on texts like this. And admittedly, this text, this passage of scripture is wildly misunderstood. And it often gets abused by chauvinists and dismissed by radical feminists. But like our goal as a church family, like our goal and, and, and my commitment to you as your pastor is like, I, I always want God's best for you, right? Like, I always want what is best for you. And I want you to live with resilient hope in this restless world. That's why we decided to go through First Peter this year. I want God's best for you in every area of life. And that includes in marriage. And in how uh, uh, and, and and how your marriage can be a witness to a watching world. Now, in order to understand God's best in marriage, we need to really wrestle with this idea of submission and authority as it pertains to the home. The context again is that Peter wants them to live with hope. He wants these Christians, these restless Christians, these tired Christians, these discouraged, anxious, depressed Christians. He wants them to live with hope. And he's unpacking how that hope fleshes itself out in various relationships of authority. And in this text, he applies it specifically to marriage. Now, as a way of prefacing, there's a few ways that we tend to view gender differences in marriage. A few different ways that we tend to view gender differences in marriage. And this, so this is just a little bit of like cultural context to help you uh, understand that. In our day and age, there's a few different ways that we tend to view gender uh, differences in marriage. Uh, the first view is what we might call radical fem- feminism. All right. Now, this is differentiated from just feminism because feminism in many great ways has uh, in, in many ways has brought wonderful things uh, to uh, Western uh, culture um, in, in the workplace in terms of like equal pay and fair opportunities and, and things like that, you know, like the right for women to vote. Right. And so and so but when we say radical feminism, what we're talking about is this is this teaching where you kind of go maybe too far over the edge to where you you start to say, look, men don't matter right? Men don't matter. They're not good. Uh, men bad, right? They only do bad. Uh, they only oppress and only women do good. And so let's give them full throttle power, right? That's what we would call radical feminism. The, the, the other, uh, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, on, the, on the far right side, we would have what we call patriarchy. This goes to this other extreme where women can't be trusted. They mess everything up. They're too weak. And so they shouldn't lead and should just, just keep their aprons on, right? And then there's an option, too, that we call uh, 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 Christian egalitarianism. And Christian egalitarianism uh, is, is, is a teaching that both men and women are equal in essence, dignity, value, and roles. And they say, you know, our differences are, 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 um, are, are, are not only, uh, we have differences only in our biological makeup, but we're virtually identical in every other way. Uh, and so, and so, uh, the roles that men and women can play uh, in 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 their various roles are very interchangeable, right? Like so, uh, in terms of who who can serve in different offices in the church and in the home, right? Who can be the head of the house? Uh, it's not, and, and and it's not really so much an integrated relationship um, or a complementary relationship, um, but it's almost like two people just walking parallel along alongside each other. 
And, uh, and, and the fourth view is what we would call Christian complementarianism, all right? And uh, just to put our cards out on the table, this is the position of King's Cross Church, right? Now, amongst Christians, we can have uh, various uh, ideas and, 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 and differences on where we might fall in these, on the spectrum. The first two, though, radical feminism and patriarchy, um, are, are opposed to the teachings of Scripture, just outright, right? And so you can have, though, some uh, Bible-believing, um, Jesus-loving Christians who w- would fall under um, the, the, the Christian egalitarianism group, um, and uh, they reason from the Scriptures, but we just happen to think that, that, that they're wrong. And that's okay, right? But it's important for you to know, uh, especially for those of you that are members of the church, that, that our position, our teaching position is from the Scriptures, that, that we believe in what uh, has historically been known as uh, Christian complementarianism. And in complementarianism, that also, we also teach that, that both men and women are equal in essence, dignity, value, and worth, but we serve in different roles. We complement one another. We believe that under God's sovereign lordship, husbands are to lovingly and sacrificially lead their family. Wives are to respect and follow that leadership, and children are to honor and obey their mother and father. And, and in saying that, um, we've, we've, we've basically, I've just littered a, a number of Bible verses and tossed them together for you, right? And, and we see this, we see this uh, sort of um, complementarian uh, leanings in the scripture, not just in our passage here in 1 Peter 3, but in many places throughout the scriptures in Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, uh, probably most famously, uh, uh, in Colossians 3, in Revelation 19, uh, and in various other New Testament scriptures. Now, just to be clear, God could have done whatever he wanted when he created us, right? He didn't have to make us man and woman, but he could have done it however he wanted us. He could have made us, uh, he could have made Adam and Eve exactly the same, but he didn't, right? Right? It wasn't Adam and Steve. It wasn't Amanda and Eve, right? It just wasn't. Like he created men and women uh, in, in a way that they should uh, fit one another, complement each other. And the Bible tells us in a number of places that the order and manner in which God created man and then woman actually highlights the nature of those differences. It says that God, the Bible tells us that God created Adam first, placed him in the garden, gave him a job, put him to work. But it wasn't good for that man to be what? What does it say? Alone. It wasn't good for the man to be alone, and so God created woman from the man. And God did this for man to provide a helper fit for him. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, uh, which says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, and I will make a helper that is fit for him. Now that word that is translated, translated for a helper fit for him, uh, it's this Hebrew word, uh, Ezer. And Ezer is a fascinating word uh, because it, it's, it, it's, it's really hard to get the thrust of that word translated from the Hebrew over to the English. Kathy Keller points out that translating it, this word as help is ironically not all that helpful, right? Because it kind of gives us this picture of someone who... Uh, who, of, 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 of like somebody who's helping somebody else do something that they could still do without you, but you're just kind of helping them, right? 
uh, and she points out that, that that's, that's not all that helpful because that word is also used to describe, that Hebrew word ezer is used to describe God as our help in trouble. When we're stuck and we can't get out of the muck and the mire, God is our ezer. He is our help, our only way out. We also see that word used to describe military enforcements uh, throughout the Psalms. Uh, uh, military enforcements that would basically help win the battle for us, right? When we would otherwise lose without those enforcements. And so, uh, and so the idea here, the reason that it's important for us to kind of harp on this at the onset of our time in God's word is this understanding that the kind of help that is being spoken of here is the kind of help that makes up for weakness by providing strength. So just to be clear, it's not demeaning in any stretch of the sense to be a help to this man. It's a reflection of God himself. God is our helper. He is the one who helps us get to places that we cannot otherwise get on our own. And Keller, again, Kathy Keller also points out that the word uh, fit, because it says uh, in Genesis 2, I will make a helper fit for him. Uh, your translation might say suitable. That, that that word fit or suitable is also not helpful in the translation. Because really what it is in, in, in this phrase in Genesis 2, it's a compound phrase that should read like the opposite of him. So it, it, it's almost like, like God is saying, look, Adam and Eve are like, puzzle pieces that they're the opposite of each other like where 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 one uh where one is 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 missing a piece the other one has a piece that just fits fits right in right and it and it it fits perfectly they complement one another it's meant to be together it reminds me of uh, the this I think this is put really beautifully and poetically in that in that postal service song, when Ben Gibbard writes, "I have to speculate that God Himself did make us into corresponding shapes, like puzzle pieces from the clay." That's the idea that is is being described here when he says a helper suitable for Him. Now, a quick word here to to uh, to singles particularly single ladies, right? Single ladies, where you at, right? So the single ladies that are here this, this morning, um, uh, just a quick word on, on, this, on this idea here is um, it's important for you to know that marriage is not the answer, all right? Like sometimes we, we, we feel this pressure from culture and sometimes we feel this pressure from Christian culture that like marriage is the answer. And then we read passages like this and we hear about complementarianism, right? And then, and then we can be tricked into thinking like you can't really truly fully live out faithfulness and grow in spiritually without, without a spouse, Right, and then if you're if you're uh, a, a young lady or a single lady, you're thinking like, man, if 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 I just had a godly husband, then I'll find myself in the center of of God's will for my life. But that's just not true. That's just we don't see that in the scriptures. Nowhere does it say that. Marriage is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus himself was not married. The apostle Paul was not married. 
And it's also important for us to know that marriage is temporary. It's not the end-all, be-all, all right? Marriage serves a purpose in the here and now, in our time here on earth, but in God's kingdom, on the other side of death, like, marriage does not exist, right? Um, which, if you have, like, an awesome marriage, like, that, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which, like, man, that's a bummer, right? But marriage is supposed to point to the great, capital M marriage, the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And so everything that we long our marriages to be on this side of death will be fully realized in ways that we just can't even fathom or imagine on the other side of death. And it's important, if you're single this morning, also to understand that there is still a general truism to learn uh, from this text that is, is good, good for us. Uh, good for you, and to and just to know that um, what it is that uh, that what is, should the Christian's relationship be with towards authority in in general, and if you're 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 unmarried, uh, you it's important for you to know um, how to support your sisters in Christ who who are married, how to pray for them, how to come alongside them, how to encourage them, right? And so our main point this morning give it to you on the front end, we're going to see in this text is that what what Peter calls a gentle wife, a gentle wife is a disruptive witness in our restless world. A gentle wife is a disruptive witness in our restless world. We talked about this a couple weeks ago about what it means to be a disruptive witness to where by the way that you live out the hope of the gospel, by the way that you live out the love that Christ has shown you, like the way that you live that out should be disruptive to the culture around you. A culture who is, that is anxious, that is tired, that is restless. And Peter here is saying, man, the gentle wife, particularly the gentle wife of an unbelieving husband, is in a great sense a very disruptive witness in a very beautiful sense. She's a disruptive witness in a restless world. I'll read our passage of scripture again in 1 Peter 3. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. And as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now first... I want us to work our way through, through some of this text and, and, and establish what submission does not mean. Okay? I mentioned earlier that the chauvinists will tend to abuse texts like this, right? And so what, let's, let's just define on the front end what submission does not mean. First, it does not mean that the wife is of lesser value. All right? It doesn't mean that she's of lesser value. Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And so mankind, he's using the collective plural word when he says God created man in his image. And then he clarifies after the semicolon, male and female, God created them. Both created in his image and likeness. That means both are given uh, by that very fact that we're made in God's image. Uh, we're given value and dignity and worth. There's a lot in this single verse. What we see is that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Both genders are. What that means is that men and women are different, male and female, as the verse says, but equal in dignity and value because we're both equally created in his image. Does that make sense? And so, and so to demean a woman in any way is a sin against the God who created her in his image. We're equal, but we're different, right? So women are different than, than men, and men are different than women. It's like right hand, left hand working together in a complementary fashion. That's how God intended it. Now, some people, some people think that it's impossible to be created equal in dignity and value, but then to have different roles and responsibilities. Like people hate that. They'll, they'll say, no, like if, you, if you're, if you're going to say that, that we can't, um, that we have different roles and, and responsibilities, then you're telling me that we're not equal in dignity and, and value. And so people hate that. But the Bible says that, no, both male and female are significant. Culture would tell us <coughs> that there is no significance to the differences between men and women. It's a culture that tells us that gender is not a gift to be received, <coughs> but a preference that we get to choose. <coughs> that gender doesn't play a role in choosing a spouse anymore. Or that it has no bearing on leadership in the home or in the church. And that there's nothing unique about being made a man or a woman other than just physical features. And man, for the right price, even that could be changed. <coughs> but <coughs> if anyone says uh, that there's something uniquely meaningful about the difference between what we would call manhood and womanhood, and that it should affect, those differences should affect the way that we see ourselves, the way that we live, the way that we relate, then culture would tell us, you know, how dare you? That's discrimination. That's unfair. That's sexist. But the Bible says, like, no, these differences are not only real, but they're meaningful and they're beautiful. They're not arbitrary differences, but they're meaningful differences. And because those differences are designed by God, they're for his purposes and they reflect his glory. And so that means these differences are actually for our good. They're for our flourishing. Those differences are designed by him and they matter to him. And so they should matter to us. All right. Now, secondly, submission also doesn't mean that the woman is lesser in intelligence, right? Doesn't mean that she can't think for herself. Doesn't mean that she's not smart enough to think for herself. Uh, and this is especially true, we actually just see in the plain reading of this text, because she has a non-Christian uh, husband in this text, right? Like Peter's saying, look, even if, even if your spouse, if your husband is unbelieving, like here's how you relate to him in order to like win him over. In other words, Peter is assuming there in the text, like, look, you get it and he doesn't, right? Like you've accepted the word, you have the spirit, but he, but he doesn't. 
Man, anyone, any of you that know both my wife and I know that she's a lot smarter than me, right? Like she's strong in areas that I'm weak. And, and, and she, uh, and she always, like, she'll respectfully point out when I'm being an idiot, which is, which is quite often. But submission also doesn't mean that the wife gets her spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Like a good husband should absolutely strengthen, pray for, and build up his wife. Well, we're going to see more about the husband's responsibilities uh, next week. But that's part of what it means to be a good husband. So strengthen, pray for, build up your wife. But the text shows that when a husband's spiritual leadership is lacking, a Christian wife is not void of her strength. Submission doesn't mean that she's dependent on him for discipleship. The text actually assumes just the opposite. She's summoned by Peter to develop depth and strength and character, not from her husband, but for the sake of her husband. In verse 5, it says that her hope is in God and that her husband, uh, through her witness, will join her in God's family. You see, in the Roman Empire at the time, wives would take on like religious practices of their husbands. And so like uh, whatever, whatever God that the husband worshipped, uh, the, 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 the wife was expected to worship that same God, to follow that same religious tradition. <clears throat> But Peter here is like, I mean, he's speaking to the wife, somebody who was not given or treated with value and dignity in that culture, right? Because in that culture, it's like, no, the woman didn't, like the wife didn't have a voice, right? She didn't have a vote. She didn't have a say, right? And she didn't have a say in, even in terms of like what religion she, she, she follows and what, and what religion to raise the kids in. And yet Peter speaks to her directly, and encourages her to stand her ground and tells her, look, you have a useful tool in your evangelism bag, the testimony of your life, the testimony of your life. Now, now he says that you can, can win over the husband uh, without a, a word. And when, I think the point that he's making there is that, like, because there, there's a sense in which you can't share the gospel without words because the gospel means good news and so there's a sense in which you can't share the gospel without words but peter's pointing out here that meant a silent witness in certain situations is powerful it's powerful just by the way that your posture that you have the posture of love and respect and honor that you can have towards another Another clarifying point is that submission in the scriptures uh, does, does not mean that she's not independent. Again, notice Peter's speaking directly to the wives, not to the husbands. That doesn't mean you have to agree on all the same opinions. God has given the wife a mind and unique, a unique mind and experiences and different perspectives. And, and Peter is in, in, encouraging her to, to use those, use those gifts, use her perspective, use her mind. He knows that some wives have chosen Christ when their husbands have not. And so if the husband says, uh, look, you can't worship Jesus in this home. We worship, I don't know, Vladimir Putin, right? Then the Christian wife is going to say, no, sorry, that's not going to happen. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to worship him. I worship, I worship Jesus. I follow Jesus. Submission also does not mean that her husband is in the place of Christ. 
It's not about putting the will of the husband over and above the will of Christ. The whole context assumes that submitting to Christ is supreme. And so when the choice is between pleasing her husband and pleasing Jesus, the easy choice is, and the right choice is always going to be Jesus. All right? So I just want to establish on the front end, those are the things that submission is, is not. And so what do we see now from this text about what submission is? Submission is, uh, first, it teaches us that conduct and character rules. Conduct and character rules. Read verse 1 and 2 with me. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And really quick, notice there, he says, Be subject to your own husbands, not men in general. All right? A lot of chauvinists will abuse verses like this and passages like this to, to try and strong arm like all classes of, of, of women uh, under their chauvinistic thumb. Right? And so... But, but here, Peter is addressing a singular relationship. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, it's helpful to know that history tells us, a little bit of the background cultural context, is that uh, there was sort of a women's liberation movement going on at the time in the Roman Empire. Because there were these crazy double standards uh, that were set up uh, against the value and dignity of women. And these double standards were, were totally awful. They were totally sinful, totally wicked. For example, it was socially acceptable for married men to have mistresses or to pay for prostitutes at the local whorehouse. But if a woman was caught in adultery, she would be publicly shamed and stoned. And admittedly, like that is wicked and that is unjust and that is unfair. That should not have been going on. And look, I just want to say, maybe, maybe for some of the women here this moment, morning or streaming online, um, like you can kind of resonate with that experience. Maybe when you were a child or you were in a relationship or a marriage that a man mistreated you abuse you, talk to you down, did not treat you with dignity, worth, respect, love, honor, cherished you. He did not. And man, to that, if, 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 if anyone here sort of resonates with those, those pains, I just want to say, like, man, I'm sorry that, that you went through that. The reason that that pains us the reason that we can call that out and say that that is not how that should be is because God reveals that what is true and good and beautiful in the scriptures is, 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 is absolutely not that. And all the ways that your heart cried injustice and that your, your heart cried in pain, just know that Jesus is the perfect man. He's the God man who can heal any of that. But knowing just a little bit of the context with the women's liberation movement is that what often happened is that a married woman in that culture, when she started to get swept up in this movement, she would respond to the injustice going around on in the culture. And she would go to this other extreme where, where, where the women were like ditching their husbands in the name of being free. And for the Christian woman, 
who has found wisdom in the gospel, Peter is, is saying, um, like, like for those Christian women who are in the gospel, they found wisdom in the gospel, but then the Pharisee and them saw their husbands as, as like, it, he's just an idiot who doesn't get it. And they wanted to leave their husbands and, and dishonor their husbands. Um, like Peter's addressing women in, in, in that kind of situation, say like, like, like no, don't, don't, don't respond to this injustice in the same way that the culture has, right? Don't respond in the same level of anxiety and, and the same uh, level of aggression as the culture says. Be, be different, right? Centuries before Aretha Franklin and Destiny's Child, these women were saying, we don't need these men. And so that's why he starts with this phrase, that word likewise, in the beginning of our passage, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, likewise. In the same way that I talked to you about how to live hope in relation to governing authorities, in the same way that I talked to you about how to live with hope in, in, in regards to your relationship with an unjust um, like, like boss or, or master, he says uh, he's calling for a wife's submission as part of a larger call for submission from all Christians in all kinds of different, different ways. <clears throat> Now, submission also we see in this text tells us that an inner quality is better than an outward adorning. We see this in verses 3 and 4 when he says, Don't let your adorning be external like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, just to be clear, it is not bad for a woman to get all dolled up and to dress nice and to smell clean. All right. Like that's the, he, he's not, he's not slamming that, but what he is talking about is an issue of character, an issue of character, because what was happening is that a lot of women were finding their identity in the class, the, the social class they belong to, um, how they looked on the outside when, well, giving no, uh, no real, uh, attention to the quality of character on on the inside, and man, all you have to do is 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 check out like your 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 latest uh, like women's magazines or 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 popular blogs or uh, you know the inf- famous influencers uh, on social media to say that that man the same thing the same lie is being marketed to women today. But Peter say, no, a gentle and quiet spirit is, is what makes her worthy of honor. And just to be clear, gentle and quiet spirit doesn't mean that she's always quiet. She never speaks up and she's always like under the thumb of someone else. That's not what that means. That word gentle there is also used to describe Jesus. Be gentle in the way that Jesus was. And Jesus fought and rose up, rose up against injustices, um, and uh, oftentimes, right? Like, and so, and so, it's he's not saying there isn't a time and a place for that, but Jesus's primary disposition was one of gentleness, because he wasn't he wasn't led by his passions, right? Like he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't easily uh, made anxious. And so what it means here is Peter saying, look, the gentle wife, she's winsome, she's wise, she's tactful. She knows what to say. She knows how to say it. She knows the best time to say it. 
And she's not what the Bible might call a contentious woman. Proverbs 21.9 says, It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Solomon's just throwing shade there, right, against the quarrelsome wife. And, and look, Peter's just saying, look, that, that type of like contentiousness where like you always got an ax to grind, you're always wanting to argue, you're always wanting to be contentious, <coughs> that's what he's talking about. In other words, Peter's saying, look, don't berate, don't belittle, don't, don't harp on your husband's weakness. Speak appropriately, speak respectfully, speak tactfully and winsomely. And when you do that, you're going to be more likely to be heard. A better understanding of the nature of Peter's description in, in verse 4 when he said gentle and quiet spirit um, has less to do about the volume of one's voice and has more to do uh, with like not insisting on your own rights. It's the Christian woman who can say, no, look, my greatest needs are already taken care of by Christ my Lord. And so I won't insist here. Um, it's, just, it's just not worth it to me. <clears throat> It also says um, in this text, we see uh, that submission means that her hope is ultimately in God. Her hope is in God. We see this in verse 5. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. You see, submission is driven by dependence on God, not on codependence on a man. So when... When a woman like quotes Jerry Maguire and says things like "You complete me," you know, like like this, that that this 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 man uh, like made makes sense of everything everything in my life, right? Like if if a woman's saying this man will make sense of everything uh, in my life, he will help me find out who I truly am. Peter's saying, "Look, you're putting weight on that man that he will never be able to carry." And so you put your hope in God, not in men. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in even getting a husband. She's not placing her hope in finding, quote-unquote, the one, right? Like, she's not, she's not chasing after that, right? She's not placing her hope in finding the one and finding, like, the right guy. Uh, David, David Zalt calls this the soulmate myth. He's got this short and beautiful line in his recent book, Seculosity, where he says, the soulmate myth commands that we be perfectly loved. But the gospel, grace announces that we already are. And so the Christian wife, like she lives as though her hope is in God and not in a man, not in some idea, not in some uh, not in some like uh, romantic abstract idea, but in in God. And um, lastly, it says that biblical submission here in this passage also results in what we would call the fearlessness of Sarah. Hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, the fearlessness of Sarah. You want to help? <laughs> The, the, the fearlessness of Sarah. We actually read this in verse 5 and 6 where it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter here, he's pointing our attention to Genesis where we see part of Sarah's life that are a great example for other women. 
right? Sarah was old, she was barren, uh, yet God promised that she would have a baby. And eleven, or in Hebrews 11 says that, that, that Sarah, uh, Sarah, in response, she had such great faith in God that she believed that that would happen. She believed that God was good on, on his work. So therefore, Sarah is one example of a woman who trusted God to take care of her even when her life was very difficult. And Peter's saying, look, be like that. Be like that. Trust in God. Be like Sarah. Trust in God to take care of you even with, when, when something seems impossible. Even when it seems like life is just really difficult. Even when you're just tired and restless. And he says, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And quickly, I want you to, to see from the text just what, what happens when this type of submission actually fleshes itself out, all right? How, what does it look like when this, this submission fleshes itself out? First, just considering the rewards of submission. The rewards of biblical submission is that, one, the unbelieving husband can actually be won over to Christ, right? Like that's the big example that Peter's giving here. He's like, you can win him over by your character and your conduct. Another reward of submission is that he, he says that you'll be like a daughter of Sarah, which is a way of saying that you are among the people of God. This is a mark of godliness to be, to be in, the, in this way. Another reward of submission, biblical submission, is, is you just get the, the final joy, the greater joy of honoring God and just receiving his favor. Right? Like, should that be enough for us to just want to honor God and receive his favor? Dorothy Patterson, uh, a theology professor at Southwestern Seminary, says submission primarily honors the Lord who established the relationship. Now look, here's one of the ways that this is fleshed out in like my and Alyssa's and Alyssa's marriage. Like uh, a, a number of, of, of years ago, like about three and a half years ago, when we really started uh, preparing for and, and praying and just planning on um, uh, just planting this church, like our original timeline was to, to, to plant the church at the end of 2019, right? To go to the end of 2019 into, tw- into 2020. Could you even imagine <laughs> what that would have been like? But that, like, that was that was the that was the plan uh, at the time. You know, we wanted all this extra time to raise to raise money, to talk to people, to to get everything in order um, and plans properly. Now, uh, Alyssa, um, she did not feel great about that timeline, uh, or she felt great about that timeline. What she did not feel great about was was when I started to say like, "Hey, I feel like God's doing something here too. Like, we we should we should launch this sooner." Like the end of 2016, I was like, "You know, I I, I think we're we're, we're kind of looking more towards like a 2017 launch." And see, I'm I'm like a dream up in the clouds kind of guy, right? And so like I'm I'm like dreaming what this could look like, what it's going to be like to gather together, uh, the kind of people that we wanted to reach for uh, the for the gospel. Um, and Alyssa is so much smarter and like more practical, like in the trenches. Like she thinks about the nuts and bolts, and she was thinking like, well, if we're going to do that, then that means we're going to have to start doing this now. And if we if this is supposed to be this way, then that means we need to start this other thing like two months ago, right? And so um, we uh, we had some discussions about it. Um, they were respectful. Uh, 
and I heard her out. We prayed about it together. We sought wisdom um, from from others, uh, and ultimately, um, she. But she said, you know. But at the end of the day, like I'm gonna trust your leadership on this. She's like, I think we should wait a couple more years. But I'm gonna trust your 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 leadership uh, on this. And so we ended up um, planting uh, a couple years earlier. Now I'll tell you right now. Um, I still don't know if that was the right decision to make, right? Like there's so many things that come up where I'm thinking like, man, if we spent two more years preparing for this or raising this much more money than we could have been this. Uh, and so I still don't know if that was um, the right answer. But like at, at, at some point in time, like someone needed to take responsibility for the big call that we were going to make in terms of how this was going to affect um, uh, my vocation, how this was going to affect our family. Uh, and, and the Bible says that that responsibility falls on, on me. And so I'm to, I'm to lead lovingly. I'm to lead sacrificially, right? I'm to, I'm to listen to my wife's voice and her concerns and everything like that. But like at the end of the day, um, she's trusting in my leadership. And that frees both of us up to just seek to honor um, honor the Lord in that and trust that, that he's sovereign over the decisions that we make, that he's sovereign over my leadership and, and just in the, in the way that we were, we're pushing um, forward. And it's that concept that, you know, we just read from Dorothy Patterson, that submission and primary honors the Lord, right? It's, 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 not, it's not so much about honoring the husband and honoring the guy because let's face it, most guys are idiots, right? And we make bad calls, it's not so much about honoring the guy, and it's not because he's right all the time, and it's not because he's the best and he's super wise and everything like that, but it's, it's honoring the Lord who established that relationship. I want to close by just thinking about the beauty that we see in submission. The beauty in submission. You see, not only is this, this idea of biblical submission, not only is it true that we see from the scriptures, not only have we seen that it's, it's good, but it's, it's also beautiful. You see, submission to authority is often despised. And Peter shows us that submission to rightful authority is beautiful and right in God's world for his sake. For his sake. We saw that two weeks ago. Then the relation, Christian's relationship to authorities that God has placed over their lives, we, 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 we submit to human authorities and institutions for God's sake. Man, that beauty is seen. We see all throughout this passage of Scripture. I mean, we, we could dive back in and just tease apart even more uh, how beautiful submission is in this, this passage. It's in verse 2. I mean, we, we, we see how uh, when the unbelieving husband sees his wife's conduct, he's wooed over to the gospel. He starts to see in his wife an example of what it looks like for somebody to say that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He's taking care of me and I'm trusting him. To see that uh, just through her conduct and her character is enough to woo him over to the gospel. In God, verse 4, it says that in God's sight, that this is precious. This, is, this disposition of a gentle wife is, is precious in God's sight. That beauty is also seen uh, not by unbelieving husband and not just by God, but also just by, by herself. By herself. Like the Christian wife can see 
her own worth and her own dignity and her own greater identity because of who she is, secure in the gospel. She's not accompanied by fear, as verse 6 says, but by, but by worship and purity, as verse 2 says. She's morally upright, uh, just like Sarah, with her quietness of spirit and her hope in God. You see, the Bible does not eschew submission, nor does it deny it and pretend it away. But it actually paints this beautiful picture of what biblical submission could look like. That through submission, even the most rebellious, wayward husband could be saved. And in polarizing and anxious times like the ones that we live in right now, the gentle spirit of a godly wife disrupts the status quo. Disrupts the status quo and points to a resilient hope that just demands an answer. And so we've seen how over the last few weeks, how the Christian's relationship with authority, when we respond in trust to, of the Lord and leaning into and under that authority that God has placed over us, has an opportunity to dispel just like the, the anxious, angry, uh, just restless rhetoric that's getting thrown around in our culture at, at this moment. And God says when he, when he sees that, that this is a precious thing. This is Christ-like. And it brings glory to Him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.